Before the pandemic, one of my favorite things to do was to travel to some other churches around uh, the United States and Canada, and just to get to see what it is that they did, how they did things. You can always learn something from every church as a pastor, and so uh, we go to all sorts of different ones with our staff and visit them, talk to them about how they do ministry, things like that. Um, I remember specifically uh, three out of all the churches we saw, so seriously, uh, I've probably seen dozens of churches over the last several years, but um, three of them really stand out. One of them was a church in San Diego. Uh, it stands out because I have never seen a screen like what they had there. It was like they had uh, this black screen and white words, but the white words were, it looked like they were floating uh, in the middle of the air. I have no idea how they did it to this day. The music there was phenomenal. It was basically all young adults. We went there on a Sunday evening and I, at first, you know, was a little bit cynical because it was, you know, they had the lights and the, and the, and the floating words and everything. And I was like, oh, this is just gonna be a big production show. But man, about halfway through, I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Uh, I do remember at the end of that service, there was a, a pastor who had formerly been a football player in the San Diego area, and uh, he asked everybody if they wanted to come forward, and um, I think he was talking about how coming forward to receive Christ, but the way that he talked about it really wasn't that way. <laughs> and people started going forward, but when they get up there, they just wanted to touch his, his hand. They just want to grab his hand uh, because he was famous. And uh, afterwards, he said, he said, oh, why don't you guys all come over here? We'll pray with you. Uh, to receive Christ. And I think some people were actually surprised that that was what they were doing. They thought they were just going up to shake the hand of the, of the, of the celebrity. I remember one too, another, another church in uh, Texas. And this church had a famous pastor who had, it was, was quite a bit older. He had actually planted the church only, I don't know, five, 10 years prior. And when you walked into the church, you realized uh, immediately that the, the church, the building was brand new, but it was brand new done in a 1980s decor. It was, it was basically like uh, the 1980s had been frozen in time and placed inside this building. You know, it's like, uh, like there were some red velvety walls and blonde wood and just it, it, everything spoke of, of older um, older church, even though the church was like, was brand new. Uh, I remember specifically because I was sitting next to one of our pastors, Ezra, as uh, they were singing this song, Stayed, Stayed Upon Jehovah. And in my mind, I'm still remembering Ezra singing, Stayed Upon Jehovah. It was great. There was a big, tall man standing next to us who was apparently usher, and he kept staring at Ezra, wondering why he was singing so loudly. We were easily the youngest people in the building, easily the youngest people of building among like 4,000 people. It's amazing. Uh, I went to another church in, in Texas that uh, we went to one of their campuses. And when we arrived at the campus, the people who were there started talking to us about how exciting the preaching was, how exciting the pastor was whenever he would preach. And uh, they loved him. And they said, you're just going to be wowed by him. Now, I, I knew who he was. I'd lived in Dallas in the past, and I, I knew who he was. And so was, I was expecting and excited about what he was going to, to bring from the Word of God anyway. So the, the video started. It was a live broadcast from their other location. And after about 20 minutes, I looked over, and the couple who uh, had been, you know, talking this, this guy's ministry up, <laughs> they were fast asleep right behind us. They had had a, they had a couple kids and uh, they had gotten up early apparently that morning and they were fast asleep. And so then I looked next to me 
and Ezra was sitting there next to me and, and he was asleep. And on my other side was Kyle, me, one of our other pastors, and he was asleep and Ezra was starting to snore. And, but it didn't seem to matter because everybody else around me was either snoring or watching their, playing on, the, on their phones. And uh, it was a great joy to listen to Ezra snore until the sermon was over and I got to nudge him and he, he woke up. And uh, I have never stopped picking on him for it. There, there are a lot of things, like I said, to learn from churches that you attend. And after you visit enough of them, you realize uh, what makes some of them different from others. There was a, there was a book that was written a number of years ago. Uh, it was called Jim and Casper Go to Church. Uh, one of the go- those guys, I think it was Casper, was an atheist. And so it was, the book was about a guy named Jim who was taking his atheist friend to different churches to get his sort of feeling about what they were like. And the subtitle of the book was Frank Conversation About Faith, Churches, and Well-Meaning Christians. And so the book kind of summarized all the things that this atheist guy thought about the churches and what was wrong with them and what they could do better in order to appeal to somebody somebody like him. Um, After visiting several churches in North America in the last several years, I'd also like to have a frank conversation. Uh, Much of what I want to say about churches, about the state of the North American church at the beginning of the uh, 2021, much of what I want to say actually can be highlighted uh, by this passage that I, I want to look at in the next few minutes. I'm not saying the passage itself is about churches and how they ought to do things, but the different ideas that are highlighted in this passage have special application to people like you and me who attend churches, who lead churches, who have something to do with churches, and I think they're instructive, even prophetic, about what it is that we should be after, what kinds of things we should value in our churches these days. So, Uh, The three things, in answer to the question, how does this passage correct the modern North American church, the three things that I'm going to point out are, number one, know your place, number two, expect the divide, and and third, tell the truth. Know your place, expect the divide, and tell the truth. So here's the first of those in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Know your place. So the people were expectantly waiting And we're all wondering in their hearts if John the Baptist might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, look, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we're just coming off the the back of uh, John's ministry. All these people are coming out into the wilderness where he's located and he's calling them to repentance. He actually wants to give them what he calls a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. He's asking them to turn away from their wickedness and turn toward God so that God would come and deliver the people of Israel. And so people are coming out in droves. This guy's actually a little bit weird out in the desert. He eats weird things, locusts. He wears a, a, a coat of camel hair and a leather belt. I mean, he's, he looks different. And so people, when they look at him and they, they start thinking to themselves, maybe, maybe this is the Messiah that's been promised to us. Now, people in our day don't really understand what that means, the Messiah who was promised to us. So 
What you need to know is that in about the century leading up to the birth of Jesus, uh, the expectation for a Messiah to deliver the people of Israel from Roman oppression was really ramped up. Uh, people started writing uh, books. They, were, they claimed they were from some ancient biblical authors, you know, guys like Solomon and David and others, and they weren't, but people used to write books in the name of those, those ancient authors saying, look, a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming, God is going to deliver us. Just like Moses delivered the people, just like, you know, Elijah delivered, just God is going to come and he's going to bring his deliverer, a great, a great prophet, a great leader. And so in one of those books, it's actually called Psalms of Solomon. Listen, this is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Psalms of Solomon, though, is one of these, one of these books. We call them pseudepigraphic, meaning because they're, they're fake writings. They're in the name of somebody that, that it, it, it actually isn't written by. So in one of those books, Psalm, Psalms of Solomon, here's, here's what it says. It was written, you know, uh, close to 100 years before the birth of Christ. See the Lord... See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. Undergird him, undergird this king, with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers. You read Rome. To purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, like the Romans, who trample her to destruction. In wisdom and in righteousness, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance. To smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. And you can hear all the language in there calling for this military deliverer who's going to bring his rod of iron and smash all those who oppose God, all those who have had the audacity to take over Israel. They're waiting for God to come and deliver through this particular Messiah. And so you can understand why people, when John is out in the middle of the middle of the of the wilderness and he is calling people to repentance and he's wearing these weird clothes why some people would start to say huh maybe that maybe this is the guy that's why our passage says people were waiting expectantly and wondering in their hearts if john might possibly be the, the messiah now john responds to that and when he answers them he says well actually i'm, I'm not the guy there's another guy coming. See, I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in fact, if you want to compare me to him, did you hear the language that he used? I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Uh, the lowest work of a slave was the untying of a person's sandals, largely because people's feet stunk and they had to walk around in dusty roads and you know people didn't use uh you know when their animals would defecate they would leave it right there and so it was very common for people to walk through that kind of thing and so if you came into a house the, the most menial task was for a slave to get down there and to uh unstra unstrap the sandals and wash and wash the feet in fact hebrew uh like rabbi's disciples were told that they need to act like a slave in regards to their rabbi. But the, the rule was they could do anything for the rabbi, but they wouldn't untie the straps of the sandals. That was just too demeaning, too low. My wife actually, uh, there's one thing she will not do, and that is that she will not clean out our, our sinks. <laughs> 
she's the one who puts all the hair in there, but she won't clean out the sink. So I get the, the lovely duty of going through our house and cleaning out the sinks. I usually try to collect all the things I find in our sinks and put it in, in a little bowl and go and give it to her just to show her the kinds of things I'm doing for her. But I think when I think about the sandals, untying of sandals, I think about that, cleaning out the clogged, hairy sinks. It's like the most demeaning thing. And John's saying, look, I'm not even worthy to do that for him. That's the, dis that's the difference between me and the Messiah who's going to come. I, I'm lower than the lowest of a slave in comparison, in comparison to him. And my baptism is that much lower than his. So don't expect me to be the Messiah. He's coming. And when he comes, he's so much greater than I am. John basically saw himself as just merely the guy who was rolling out the red carpet. Your joy and expectation, he says, should not be placed in me. Your joy and expectation should be placed in the one to whom I point. Now, I just want to reflect on that for a second. Um, if I could say something pointed to the North American church, it would be that I think we need to fight celebrity culture. I'm surprised, in fact, that there are so many pastors who are considered celebrities by those who attend their, their churches. If I could say something pointed to pastors in North American churches, it would be, you need to know your place. We could learn a lot from John the Baptist, that serving Jesus is not a pathway for our names to be in lights, that serving Jesus is a pathway for his name to be in lights. I was at a conference several years ago and I spoke at the conference and I'm, afterwards, you know, you finish the conference, you go behind into their little speaker's room, you have something to drink and then you go out to the, to, to the foyer after where people are mingling and stuff and you go out there and, you, and, and some people come up and they want to debate you about what you just said and other people want to come up and say, I, you know, I didn't agree or other people say, I, I, I really enjoyed that, it was great. Um, one person came up to me after one of the times that I spoke at this, at this conference and, and they thrust their Bible into my hands and they said, that was a great sermon. Will you sign my Bible? And I was put in this weird position. I'd never asked that, never thought of anyone asking that. And I thought, what, what, wait, what? Would you sign my Bible? I said, where? Like in the front, would you sign the Bible? And so I told them, I'll tell you what, I won't sign your Bible, but you can get the signature from the author when you meet him. There are some, though, who would think that that's a great idea. Look at, you know what, I, I, of course I'm going to sign your Bible. My signature is really worth something, and it's probably going to add some value to your Bible by putting it in the front. Have you ever looked at some websites of some churches? They, the first thing they put on the website is a picture of the pastor. Or they sell a book, and on the front cover of the book is the picture of the, pa of, of the pastor writing it. He usually got his hand in his chin saying, you know, wink. Read this book because it will add so much to your spiritual life and you will come to love me more. And also I will get hundreds of thousands of dollars from it and I will buy an enormous house. There is an attitude sometimes among pastors that this is a pathway. The ministry, the gospel ministry is a pathway to self-aggrandizement, to, to promotion 
to your name, as I said before, in, in lights. I attended a conference uh, in the early 2000s where there was a pastor who was very well known and had, it was considered very much a celebrity. I mean, he's the guy who's being interviewed in the papers all the time. And I had a lot to learn from him. He, he was brilliant and understanding of the culture and had all sorts of things to teach people. But he made a comment that really stuck with me for the wrong reasons. He made a comment in the middle of his, of his talk when somebody had, had asked him, uh, what is your strategy for making Jesus known in your community? He said, look, I have realized that a lot of people love me. A lot of people want to hear from me. A lot of people want the brand of, and then he gave his name. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to use the popularity that I have in order to have people like Jesus too. And when he said that, I know, I know what he's trying to say. I understand it. But at the same time, all that could roll through my mind were certain passages of scripture, like John 3 verse 30, where John the Baptist himself says, he must become greater and I must become less. And Luke 17, verse 7, uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples who seem to have an idea that they want to become really valuable and important people. Tell us how to increase our faith. And he responds by saying, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Hey man, we're going to celebrate. You're looking after the sheep. What a good job you did looking after the sheep. Let's throw a banquet. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, says Jesus to his servant disciples, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. See, the grand story is about Jesus. I know we like to think that the grand story is about us and Jesus is like a contributing character who puts our name up in lights and he comes alongside to help us reach our dreams. It's just not the case. That we fit into God's overall plan. We fit into God's overall design and the things, the gifts that you and I have been given serve that purpose, not the purpose of making us great. I've often wondered why it is that God, who is completely self-sufficient, I mean, think about this theologically. God who is completely self-sufficient, meaning that he needs nothing, my mother used to say when I was a little kid, she used to say, I said, why did God make people? And she said, oh, because he was lonely. And that's, that's not true. God has always existed in a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of friends. He's not lonely. He's never been lonely. He is completely self-sufficient. He needs nothing from anyone. No one adds to him. So if you have a God who's completely self-sufficient, why in the world would he use people like us in order to achieve his goals. Why instead wouldn't he, like if he wants to save people, why wouldn't he just write it in the sky? Or you know, ha have, you know, have people fall asleep one night and have a vision and they get the vision and then, and then they're saved the next day. Like why, why wouldn't God do it that way? Instead he ends up using people like me who are really not good at it or people like you to achieve the purposes that he has in this world. There's a theologian named Bruce Ware and he was, re he was reflecting on that and he said, Look, the only reason that we can surmise, that we can come to, come to, to, to think that God would share 
is because he's a sharing God. The reason that he uses people like us when he could do it all by himself is because he wants to share in his joy with us. And so if that's the case, then ministry is a mercy. The gifts that God has given us are, are a mercy. They are, they are not tools through which we can get fame or fortune. They are a way for God to get the glory ultimately. And that you and I, like John, end up saying, I must decrease so that he might increase. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. May him, to him, be the glory. Right, so that's the first thing I think we can learn. Know your, know your place. Secondly, verse 16 again, and then I'll read on to verse 17. Here's what it says. Uh, John answered them, the people who are expecting him to expecting him to be the Messiah. I answered, Jesus, and John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now you read that and you're thinking, okay, but what, is, what does that mean? Right, so John baptizes with water, but this one, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, he explains exactly what he means by giving you a picture. Here's the picture. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fires. The winnowing fork is in his hand. You and I don't do farming like that. We don't do wheat farming generally. And if we were wheat farming, we would get a combine and we would use it to do it. In those days though, wheat farming was done with one of these. This is a little, a little fork over here. This is a basket. The way, that you, the way that you did wheat farming was that you would put all the grain on the floor of your threshing floor and you would some, either you would step on it or you get one of your animals to come and crush the heads of grain. And then you would take this fork, basically a rake, and you would scoop up the wheat and you would throw it in the air right above this catcher, this bag, and the heavier wheat would fall into the bag so that you could take and store it in your barn, and the chaff would blow off into a side of the, uh, of the threshing floor, and then you would gather up all that chaff and you'd go and, and, you'd, go and you'd burn it. This is, the, this is the image that Jesus is using here. He's saying, look, when, or uh, that John is using here about Jesus, he's saying, look, when this Jesus comes, here's, what's gonna, here's what his ministry's gonna look like. Um, the people are going to be on the floor and, and, and Jesus is going to toss them up in the air and some of those people are going to fall into the basket because they are his possession. He's going to go and take them into the storehouse and they're his possession. And others are going to be chaff that blow away. On the floor, they may all think that they belong to Jesus, but as the chaff is going to flow, blow away. This, of course, is tied into the passage that immediately preceded talking about the the importance of repentance and practice, not just profession of someone's faith. But there's going to be a great dividing. There's going to be a great divide. Not everybody is going to receive the message of Jesus. This is a prophecy. You notice the words here, will. When he comes, he will do this. John is predicting it. 
that not everybody is going to accept the message. Now, you and I, we don't need to be told that not everybody accepts the message of the gospel. We don't. But sometimes it seems like we in the church doubt that. It seems like we actually believe that, look, if we just use the right tools, if we just say it in just the right way, everyone will believe it. There, there is a way, there's a secret set of words or phrases. There's an abracadabra that will unlock the heart of the people to whom we're speaking. And if we can just find that silver bullet apologetic, if we can just find that silver bullet way of talking, everyone will believe. There won't be a divide between wheat and chaff. Everyone will be, everyone will be wheat. It's almost like we, uh, we think uh, in, in this way. You know, you ever go into a, a dark hallway and you got a set of keys, you get those big janitor key set keys. I sometimes go in and try to get in the kitchen at the church for water. And uh, I, I have a set of keys and they all shaped the same, but I don't want to turn the lights on in the hallway because then they'd see me going in and get the, getting the water. And uh, I try to use one key and it doesn't work. The next key doesn't work. Next key, it doesn't work. It's always the last key. Right? It's always the last key when you're in the, in the dark hallway. It feels sometimes like we think that way about, about you know, people getting saved. If we can just find the right key, we just find the key with the right letters on it that will unlock the door of the heart of the people, that's what we're after. And if we do that, then everyone will buy it. Everyone will believe. Um, this was a viewpoint, actually, of a guy during what's called the Second Great Awakening uh, in the United States. There was a guy named Charles Finney. Um, I think Finney served in the this, in this state, state, states or Britain, but Finney was, uh, was the first guy to really, really popularize what we call the altar call. And the reason he, said, the reason he did that, the altar call was when, you know, you, you, there's a point at which the end of a ser sermon or a service that you just, you say to everybody, okay, now's the time for you to commit your life to Jesus with every eye bowed and every eye closed. Uh, I want you to raise your hand or stand up and come forward at, to the altar and you can come and be saved. Very much like the guy who went out, the, the, the football player in San Diego who called people, called people forward. That approach was really a part of Charles Finney's approach. Prior to him, not, not a lot of people ever, ever did it. And the reason that he employed this approach was because he believed that the only thing that was standing in the way between somebody coming to faith in Jesus and not the only thing standing in the way from being them being wheat and chaff was their own will. And so any tools that you used to sway their will were justified, right? I mean, you're talking about heaven and hell here. So anything that you did, psychological uh, pressure, maybe you, I've told you this before, Finney would bring some people who looked like they were kind of on the edge of committing their lives to Christ. He'd put them forward on what's called the preaching bench, and he'd just yell at them for 45 minutes until they gave in. The pressure of an altar call, the pressure of music, the pressure of you know, designing the tent just right, everything was geared around trying to overcome their will so that they would commit themselves to Christ. Finney very much believed that the way that you make a disciple of Jesus is the same way that you, you make a widget. You, you add a little bit of this, the way you add a little bit of that, and then out comes the widget, right? Chocolate chip cookies, you chocolate chips, you put some flour, you put some eggs, some bunch of sugar, you cook it up, you mix it all together with some oats, and you throw it out the other end, and there's the cookie. That's what it is, and so if you don't get the cookie, then it's just because you didn't use the right ingredients. In fact, you have to find, 
You have to find the key. Isn't that why people take somebody, take an atheist on a trip through churches? Hey man, just tell us what is the key that is going to unlock the door of your heart. And then we'll write a book about it. And we'll just follow that prescription and everybody will be saved. And yet you have a passage like this that's saying, no, no, actually, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how much decor you use, no matter how many lights, no, no, no matter how well you say it, some are not going to believe. Some will be chaff and some will be wheat. This should not come as a surprise, of course. I mean, all other places in Scripture say this. Luke chapter 8, uh, there's a parable that Jesus tells about how people receive the Word of God. I've mentioned it many times. It's called the parable of the soils. The first soil is the path. You know, the farmer goes out, he throws a bunch of seed out, and the, the, the seed lands on a path. And so when Jesus comes around and explains what the meaning of that parable is, he says this in Luke 8 verse 11. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the Word of God. It's the message about Jesus. So when it's preached, that's the farmer throwing it out. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. There are some people who respond to the message about Jesus and immediately it just gets picked up and taken away. They just They don't care. They just think it's silly. No matter what you say, no matter how you go about it, it's just not going to make any difference. And so the response that some of us have is, well, wait wait a minute. Maybe maybe he didn't throw the seed right. Maybe if he threw it right with just the right spin, maybe we need to change the message enough to maybe make it so that they do buy it. Which is why passage like 2 Corinthians 4 where the Apostle Paul deals with the same kind of question. Why is it that when I preach the gospel, people aren't believing? Because that makes me very sad. I want everybody to believe. But why aren't they? And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry. You note that, right? Ministry is mercy. Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We, We don't use deception nor do we distort the word of God. Don't try to dupe anybody. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, even if the people who receive it, you know, the devil comes and takes it away off the path, even if they're the chaff, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, this is the problem. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves. We're not trying to give them ourselves and, you know, Jesus as an afterthought. But what we preach is Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So here's how it is that people come to faith in Jesus. 4, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Just like the creation account where God speaks light into the darkness. It's a miracle. Just like God who said, let light shine of darkness, he has made his his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Look, the role of the church, 
The role of pastors, the role of people who attend, when they go out and they want to proclaim the gospel to all of the world, the role is to set forth the truth plainly. The job isn't to mess, up, mess it up. The, jo- the job is to be faithful to it, set forth the truth plainly, and expect it to divide. That's what Jesus' ministry, according to John, was going to do. Expect the divide. Finally, tell the truth. Know your place, expect the divide. Finally, let's, let's look at telling the truth. Verse 18, and with many other words, John, ex- John exhorted the people and proclaimed good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This is a funny little, funny little tale to end this passage. Um, John rebuked Herod because of Herodias. So there's a story behind that. Uh, Herod was what they called the Tetrarch. He was basically uh, the local regional governor. The Tetrarch was like the ruler of of that area. So he wasn't the king necessarily. He was was lower than that. He used to call people who were, you know, their rulers kings, even if they weren't kings. But... Herod was, Herod Antipas is his name, and he, and he just governed the area of Galilee where Jesus, where Jesus was, and John was. Herod has a checkered past. Um, he had a wife who was uh, married to him for a political alliance, right? He was married off by his father so that his wife and his wife's family could be partners with the Herods, and everyone would live peacefully and their kingdom would flourish, right? But on one occasion, uh, Herod Antipas was traveling and he saw the wife of his brother. And she was beautiful. In fact, she happened to be his niece. And she was beautiful and he just thought she was great. Her name was Herodias. So when he saw her, he seduced her and he decided that his wife, the daughter of the, the rival king that they had arranged for the peace, he decided that his wife needed to go away. So he did. He kicked her out. That ended up causing a war. (laughs) He kicked her out and he took Herodias from his brother and he brought her to Galilee and they ruled there together. So everybody knew the story of Herod and Herodias. This is, by the way, is not an uncommon thing for Roman governors to do, right? They were not the most upstanding people in the world, right? They, they, They had the Kardashian background or whatever it is these days, right? But when this happened, very few people said much about it, except for John, who when he hears about this, starts spouting off and saying, that's wicked. What the ruler here has done is that's, that's wicked. Now that's a surprising move on John's part, at least from my point of view, because if there's one guy that you want to leave alone and not say anything about, it's probably this, this, this dirty fox. Jesus calls him a fox later on. This, this guy who's done this act and has authority over you and put, can put you in prison. Like, you don't talk to him about this. And yet, John doesn't back down. He actually is in what I'd call an equal opportunity offender. John appeals to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 18, 16, don't have sexual relations with your brother's wife, that you would dishonor your brother, and he rebukes Herod with it. Even if Herod doesn't believe the Old Testament law, it doesn't matter. You're guilty according to God. And this brings along with it the locking him up in prison. 
Um, if I could say something pointed to the North American church finally, it would be that we probably need to regain our prophetic voice. We have a habit of shrinking back from telling the truth when we can see it's going to hurt us. See, we tell the truth when it's focused on people who don't have authority over us. We tell the truth about our culture and society and the people in our church. We, we, we stick to the Bible when the words that what it, sa- what it says aren't going to hit the ears of those who are listening and so that they, they remove their giving or take you know, leave of absence or say, I don't like you anymore. I'm going to write a really mean email. We just... Many pastors, you just say, I just don't want to deal with that anymore. So, so we shrink back. And I'm, I'm telling you that I don't think that's the faithful act here. I think John is actually called the, one of the greatest prophet by Jesus. And if we want to follow the example of the greatest prophet, we too should be equal opportunity offenders, meaning that we should be no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if you're the king. It doesn't matter if you're a pauper. The truth is the truth is the truth. Yeah, but we have a habit of shading it for ourselves. One of the things that's happening in the last little while in the United States, I'm an American, that I've noticed is really sh- shocking is actually uh, back in the summer, there were all these riots that happened and businesses got burned and all sorts of terrible things happened. And there were people politically who were defending the riots saying, you know what, this is what happens when people are distressed and feel like they're oppressed by their government not being listened to. So it's okay for them to do that. And then, of course, we had this terrible situation with the Capitol riot that took place just last week. And those people who were justifying the riots in the summer are now decrying the riots now. And those who are justifying the riots now saying, you know what, these people feel really aggrieved. They don't think that they thought the election was stolen. stuff. Those people were criticizing the riots in the, in the summer. In other words, riots are good or bad, according to most political actors, based upon your politics, not, about, not, not upon the principle that riots are bad. That's the way we do it. We look through the prism of what's going to help us or what's going to help us avoid pushback, and, and we go with that. I had a friend who's a pastor. This happens in churches, too. He... Uh, he had a meeting scheduled in his, the meeting was about a, with a rich man in his church. And the rich man came in and said, listen, I, I just, I'm really troubled by the fact that you have been preaching this and this. And when the pastor heard it, he was like, yes, but the, I, when I'm preaching those things, it's straight out of the Bible. Like, let me show you again. I'll show you several other passages that demonstrate that what I'm saying is actually true. And the man said, the giver, the, the big donor said, I, listen, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I just, I think that that is, you know, the r- wrong way to go. You're offending people. It's not appropriate. You know, you're saying too much about this. You're saying too much about that. And I would appreciate it if you would stop. And if you don't stop, I, we, my wife and I are going to have to take our, our donations elsewhere. You know, veiled threat. My friend said to me, look, in that moment, Jeff, I didn't honestly know what to do. Like I knew in my heart there was, a, there was an, an answer with integrity that says, it doesn't matter, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. And he said, that's exactly what I ended up saying. But he said, but in my heart, I thought to myself, oh no, my church is a church plant. Are we going to survive? Do I really want to go down this path? Maybe I could say it more softly. Maybe I could avoid this whenever I get to it. But as I said, in the end, he ended up choosing to go, the, go that path. And he said, do you think I did the right thing? And I did, he didn't even get the words out of his mouth before I said, yes, 
Yes. You did the John the Baptist thing. You did the thing that Jesus did. You did the thing that all faithful communicators of the word of God, all faithful church leaders ought to do. We are equal opportunity offenders. We don't back down. We don't shrink back from telling the truth, even if it's going to end us in jail, even if it's going to end up in situations that we don't want, even though it might give us emails that we don't want to get. We go through with it. I was on the Northview TV last week with little kids, the little kids TV, and the, the joke was that this little guy, Marvin, he's a, he's a puppet with green hair, and uh, he, at the end of the interview he was doing with me, the interview was him looking over my shoulder at, at what I was preparing a sermon, and he started saying in his Marvin voice, are you gonna say that? And I said, well, yeah, you can't say that. You'll get emails. And I was like, well, and then he said, I'm gonna go tell Ezra. And then he took off and I said, no, 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 don't do that because Ezra scares me. <laughs> but that's a, an understandable joke. And the reason that it's understandable, the, the, the skit was understandable is because yeah, that's what, that's what happens. That's what happens. You have a choice to make. And it's not just for pastors, it's for people who are, who are sitting in the pews, people who are sitting at home like this. You are often faced with situations in our lives where we're either gonna tell the truth or we're not. And we think very much about the person we're telling it to and saying, do they have authority over me? Do they have a situation in which I need to have their favor? And we back down and we don't tell it. When the truth is, we could be a lot more prophetic. And I think the Lord would be far more honored. Look, let me finish with this. I don't think the church needs any more equivocating pastors. We need people who can tell the truth. So here's, here's the passage that is given by the Apostle Paul. These are kind of some of his final words ever. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter four. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Timothy, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, look, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. There is gonna be an out of, the, out of season. There's gonna be time when it doesn't, People aren't going to appreciate it. They're not going to clap for you. They might imprison you. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, but you, Timothy... You pastor, you leader, you keep your head. In all situations, you endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Oh, may it be so. And may the church flourish under the guiding hand of our capable God. Let me pray for us, Lord. I'm thankful for uh, your word. I'm thankful for passages like this that really do challenge the way we think maybe about our churches. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us, all of us, to treasure the things that we see in the ministry of John and in Jesus, Father, and remain faithful to those, even in the midst of times that are troubling. Bless us as we go forth and do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.